Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability and what that means. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why didn't I use the phrase long haul at the very beginning of this? Because I'm a bit rusty. Back from vacation. Thank you, listeners, for letting us post a lot of podcasts from the bossy free and open source software yearly conference in Portland last year. In August, that was really fun. It was great to be here. But today we have a normal podcast again after our long conference podcast hiatus. I'm joined today by my co-host, Leslie Hawthorne. Leslie, how are you doing? Just great, Richard. Thank you. Greetings from Bonn, Germany. Cool. Willkommen nach die Podcast or something. I, my German's still really bad. I'm, of course, Richard Litauer. That's actually pretty good. Oh, cool. And we're joined also by a guest, which is great. Otherwise, it would just be Leslie and I talking in German, bad German for a long time. Sophia Vargas is joining us today from also New York City. Sophia, how are you? I'm doing okay, as well as we can on a Monday morning. Tell me about it. But I have coffee, so things are going to be okay. So Sophia is a researcher, nay PM, apparently shouldn't use the word program or project manager anymore. So I want to hear more about that. But researcher generally works at Google. Sophia Vargas has been around for a while. You may have seen her name here and there often in connection with Amanda Kasseri, who I believe is your immediate boss. Yeah, we went from a research team of two to, I like to say, one and a half now because she has to be a manager. But just be the two of us focusing on open source ecosystem research. And now there's still two of us, but one has less time. So I want to hear a few things. First off, Amanda's been on this podcast many, many times. We all love her number-driven approach to thing. What gets measured is what gets mattered or whatever she normally says. How do you differentiate yourself from Amanda while studying open source ecosystems at Google? And what is your specialty? So I, I think we kind of got to the same topic in two different ways. I started my career in market research. So I've been looking at dynamics of industry for a long time. Focusing initially on data center infrastructure, how do people build data centers in sustainable and resilient ways? And so a lot of it was just understanding system architecture and design. And then when I switched to this team, it became about understanding how we build systems versus built systems. And so I came at it from a market research perspective, as well as from sort of the internal business research, or not really academic research. But the fun part about this space is that a lot of those things are starting to blend now. And that we're understanding how we as a company are interacting in this space, but also understanding the space itself and how it's changing, how it's evolving, and how we as a company are interacting with it. So I think I kind of came at it from a lens of understanding business and industry research, and then have been pivoting a bit to try to look at it from both perspectives as a company, but as an individual, and how we as a company are supporting both individuals inside and outside of our organization. Excellent. Okay. So I feel like I missed something there because for me, data centers are big buildings where you store physical hard drives where things have to get stored. And they're also somewhat controversial. There's a whole suite of protests in Northern Ireland about putting a data center there. There's the open UK's idea of having a clean data center and all that stuff. And that seems to me to be more of an architectural decision. Versus open source software, which is me and a couple of friends hacking away on a Saturday night on some NPM modules. How did that segue really, can you like tease out a bit more how that changed? You just got to follow what you're interested in. I think that's kind of been my whole career. If you've had a really good question, I want to go understand what it is and what it means. 
my central focus has always been understanding systems and system design. And so data centers are very physical thing that interact with, so it's kind of like the, the bridge between tech and the grid. And so understanding all the sort of power and cooling infrastructure that takes power to technology and how we build systems between those spaces. But it's still just understanding system design and understanding resiliency in this model, where now I'm looking at people and how people are interacting in open source ecosystems, but they're still systems. They're still interacting in and around different constructs with different methodologies, different governance structures, different resilience structures, understanding how we operate as a diverse body of incentivized people with different motivations. And so it's just, I'm still thinking about systems and how they interact with each other. It's just now mostly looking at people that are building the technology as the system versus the technology as the system. You had me at data center infrastructure that used to be one of the things I love to nerd out about once upon a time when I worked at your current employer. And I also like to, getting back to Richard's earlier statement about the dreaded use of the PM job title, I used to refer to myself as an engineer of human systems if I actually wanted to get respect in a room full of engineers who'd never met me before. So I am just curious, you know, in terms of the research that you're doing on human systems and open source projects, one, if you're able to tell us a little bit more about that research, and two, what is Google's motivation for investing in this research? I guess I'll start first part and then I'll go into the research sorry, the second part of that question, just to to kind of get it out of the way. I think from my perspective, my role didn't really exist before I had it. I think we had Amanda who was focusing on open source ecosystem research. But when I came in, it was understanding how we as Google are interacting in this space, how we're perceived in this space, how we are supporting this space. And so at this point, I understand my research focus as one very tactical, understanding how to support our individual projects, helping them measure, collect metrics, understand what's going well, what they need to improve. So it's kind of related back to the chaos work, which we haven't really talked about it much. But on the other side, I'm also look at my role as understanding how is it going? How are we doing as a company? Who's doing what? What can we learn from our current behavior in and around these systems? So that we, when I say we, as OSPO within Google, how are we supporting the people that actually contribute and work on these things as both a Googler as well as an individual? Because there's so many people at Google that work on open source in their personal time as well. So I'm always thinking about how we can improve feedback to the programs, systems, tools, processes that we have in place for our internal contributors that want to work in all of these contexts at all times. So how are we ensuring that we're providing them the right tools and information to be able to work in the way that they want to with these spaces? And on the other side, how are our things impacting the broader ecosystem? Our investments, our programs, our engagements, are we ensuring that the things that we are putting money into are leaving it better off? I think that's sort of the concern that I have as a large organization. We do give money to a lot of spaces, but are we actually making those spaces become more sustainable or are they now just more dependent on corporate funding? And I would hate to see that. And I think especially now that there's just less money to go around, we have to be even more specific in how we choose where to give money. So I think one of the things that I'm really thinking about now in my current research is how do we better guide those decisions? We are a large company. We pay employees. We give grants. We have mentorship programs. We sponsor things. But are the right people getting the money in terms of who are we helping and what impact does this have on that individual project or that space? 
Because I think it's sort of like, it's the awkward thing in the room. We need money to live. But most people that we interact with are really motivated by that in the community, which is, I think, something that's what I'm fascinated with. So that's the other side of this research is understanding motivation. Um, So that was my big project last year was trying to understand why people were doing this in the first place, what motivates them to work on these spaces. So I went out and, and worked on a study that was looking at composition of various communities, what was motivating these people to contribute, why were they there, why were they leaving, what were the things that would keep them around for longer. And I did all this work and then found this wonderful piece of research that was published, and I should know the researchers offhand, but I know folks like Georg Link and Anita Sharma were involved in that. They also published a piece of research on Motivate's open source work. And the wonderful thing was two different studies and two different methodologies, and we came to the same conclusion. which is always really a positive thing for research, which is that people were here to learn new skills and they stuck around because they had fun doing it. So neither of these things have anything to do with money, but we need money to pay people to live. People need to live. And so I think, again, I'm kind of stuck on that. So as a company who's doling out funds in some way, how do we not break this beautiful motivation of people who just want to be here and want to interact with the community. They want to learn, they want to develop, they want to sustain this thing that they love and the community that they love. And I I don't want to break that. So that's kind of, I guess, my long-winded way of saying what Google is interested in, what I'm interested in, and what I'm interested in guiding as a member of this organization and as a member of the community. That's really cool. There's a couple of different things coming up for me. One of the things that I'd really love to ask you a follow-up question is, how does your research work at Google inform or is it completely separate from your work as member of the board of the Chaos Project? It's a little bit overlapped. My work in Chaos tends to be a bit more tactical and executional in that we in Chaos were thinking about metrics and how metrics can help us understand what's happening in a project. So I started working with the Chaos community because the work was directly aligned with what I was doing inside of Google on behalf of some of our open source projects. So it's been an incredible community to just talk to peers that are working through the same problem. <laughs> How do we understand what's happening in a project? How do we explain that to our business leaders? How do we explain that to our community leaders? How do we find a common language across these spaces to understand what's happening at any point in time? So I think chaos is really focused more on that sort of the project level. But at the same time, through that community, there's a number of researchers and professors that are part of it. And There's also a lot of interest in understanding these sort of broader ecosystem questions around open source. And a lot of it is sort of rooted in what can we learn from the data that's already there and then understand beyond that. So I think through the chaos community, I've met a number of other members that we're now actively working on side research projects, which has been really awesome. So it's been an awesome space to meet people that are peers at other companies working in open source programs, offices, as well as just interested in better understanding what we can learn from the data around open source. I think there is an incredible amount of trace data of just people interacting in these public platforms. And I know we're all kind of, there's a little stickiness with understanding how much data we're collecting around people. But at the same time, it's can we use the data that we already have to better understand what's happening, to better understand what we can do to continue to support the space. And so there is sort of overlap in the chaos work there. But for the most part, my other research topics tend to be a little bit more separate because they're not always metrics related. There's always, there is sort of a metrics component, but I look at it more as sort of the like, 
the tactical understanding of an individual project versus my research tends to focus a little bit more broadly at broader concepts that stretch across the entire ecosystem, not just an individual project. So I think my main question that's coming up for me, there's a lot, you've really, really interesting job and position, but working at Google, one of the major funders of open source, both internally and externally, every single conference I feel like has Google somewhere as one of the platinum sponsors, et cetera, et cetera. I really want to know how you get to the bottom of the question that you hinted at, which is, have we just made this open source project dependent upon us versus how do you donate effectively? So I imagine that you went out and grabbed metrics to try to answer this question. Well, here's, we have this question. Let's figure out how to do it. Can you say anything at all about any conclusions you've drawn about how to not make that happen? Not yet. This is actually, this is actively in progress now. So I'm jumping ahead of the bit. The, the, the focus on motivation was sort of last year's piece. And now we're trying to see how money might impact that. And I think that's kind of where I'm starting because I think there's sort of two very different levels to approach this question. There's sort of the huge level we're throwing a giant bucket of money at a conference. And that's starting somewhere at the, I don't know, Linux Foundation level. And it goes somewhere into the organization. This money going into the system from that angle. But I think what I'm really interested in is starting with the people because they're the thing, the part that does all the stuff is really happening at the people level. And so some of that money will trickle down to individuals. But instead of looking at it from that perspective, I'm trying to look at what's happening at the individual level. So starting with just understanding motivation and why people are doing things and seeing how money might change that and how it may or may not change incentive, change priority, change behavior if I can understand what's happening at the people level, then as we look at all the ways that money is coming into these systems, whether or not it's a grant, a sponsorship, or some other type of mechanism, then we're looking who is actually getting the money and what does that mean from what they do and what they don't do. Right now, the, the things that I've seen that are starting to, to spark more questions and more investigation is there was another piece of research, again, one of my contacts, Anita Sharma, is on this paper, and it's looking into the question of belonging. And the piece of research looked at the, a survey of contributors to the Linux kernel and was looking at all these various aspects of how people feel like they belong in a system and sort of understanding those various different attributes. And within it, I think there was like over 60% of that survey population were paid individuals to work on Linux kernel and only a third of them were not paid. And her research is starting to indicate, or her and the other researchers on the project, that those that were being paid might have had less strong social ties to the community. And they maybe didn't care as much about the social ties because now, again, if you think about their incentives, their, their incentives are different. They're being paid to be there versus being there and being paid. And if your incentives are different, how is that impacting your motivation? I think that's a very complex question. <laughs> We're not really sure like how to, because it's going to be really different for every person. But I keep coming back to this one thing where I, I have a friend who just finished his PhD in chemistry, and he is now pursuing a job, a research think tank, and I'm super proud of him. But in the middle of the stay-at-home pandemic, he, as, as a chemist, part of his research project was delayed by the Panama Canal shutting down. Like he couldn't get equipment for like nine months or something wild like that. And he's like, okay, I guess I'm set back another year. So he had a lot of extra time where he couldn't do a lot of things. And he got really into painting and started painting all this stuff. And was just like, he's so excited about it and having such a fun time doing it. So when he finished his PhD, he had this moment of, wait, do I really want to be an artist or do I want to be a chemist? Because now like I found this thing that I'm really passionate about. 
And the more that he tried to sell his art, the more he started to not want to do it. And it was taking the joy out of it in a way where I was like, okay, well, I think now this is squarely a hobby, but not the thing that you want to work for. And I think it sort of like wasn't a great example of doing your hobby as a profession might ruin the hobby for you in a way that like, again, it comes back to understanding people are working on these systems because they're having a good time. They like doing it. They like learning. They like engaging in the community. But if we start, depending on how we pay them, could change that. If we make this a job, if we make this a requirement, if now you have to respond to all those people about bugs and security issues and fashion with an SLA, have we now broken the reason why they're there? And I think that's really what I want to understand a little bit more because I think we don't want to break it. (laughs) I keep saying that, but it's true because I think it's a very fine line. It's a complex, motivation is a very complex thing. It's a very personal thing. And so starting at it from understanding the people, I feel like I went a really long tangent here, um, but it comes down to the people. So understanding how people are working, why they're working, and then understanding how, if they receive money, how they receive it, how that impacts their experience working in the project, how that impacts the community experience working in the project. And so that's kind of where I want to focus my research in the next six plus months around this topic is trying to understand if, if we can separate out any of this. And I will say very candidly that I have attempted to do things like this in the past and they've totally failed. (laughs) Where I was originally looking at trying to separate this question from the perspective of, are you doing it on behalf of your employer? Are you doing it on behalf of your personal time? And that's kind of where I started this question. And when I we looked at it from the perspective of a survey, there wasn't a clean line as in people were doing the same work that they were doing on behalf of their employer in their personal time too. And to be fair, when I stepped back and I looked at those survey results, I was like, oh, I do that too. <laughs> like, I took a community call after hours. I'll join a, like, a networking session at 5 p.m. on a Friday for a hallway track at a conference that I'm not at. But I'll do it anyway because I'm interested in supporting this community. What I've done that during work hours? Yes, because I'm thankfully in a role that supports that. But there isn't really a clean separation there. I want to believe that we can learn something that will help us be more effective at how we give money. And so I got to go look. Again, it's an interesting question to see if we can answer it. Do you think there's a magical amount of money which we can give, which incentivizes people enough to be able to stay in the game, but not enough where it like affects their decision to be there? I have a suspicion that it's really around what you're agreeing to do. Like, mm. I think it's like coming down to maybe like the SLA versus you're getting money to live versus you're getting money to respond to my bug request. Then there's a little bit more strings attached. So I think that's sort of the question. And I think my former colleague, Julia Ferrioli, has presented on this topic a few times around the lack of any sort of contract or formal agreement between the users and the builders around how if you start using a project as a company and you don't really understand what this means, you might have all these sort of ideas around what you can expect from a maintainer around, oh, there's a security issue. They have to go fix that, right? Because it's a problem. It's like, well, yeah, but they'll get to it when they get to it. They're under no formal agreement of when they should be doing this. But if you give them money, now there's like a, hey, you should do this for me because I gave you money. But if you don't have a contract, then there is no explicit relationship between 
you receiving money from the entity and you actually doing the service that the entity wants you to do. And I think that's kind of the gray area. Whereas if you're at a company, you're being paid to do things. And then now that's just part of your job and your work. And so the, all, all of that gray area. And I'm really curious to watch. So one of the things I'm watching is Tidelift. I think it's a really interesting idea because it is sort of starting to add requirements of maintainers. If they accept money, then they're saying they are going to do these things. But it's not an explicit contract or agreement, but there is sort of starting to create that language, starting to create that structure that's starting to make this look more like a job and starting to make this look like more implied expectation. But again, like now it's no longer a hobby. Now you're getting explicit asks, explicit requirements, explicit priorities based on where the money is coming from. Is any of your research looking at other people who have covered this before in other voluntary organizations, careers, because it doesn't seem like this is a new problem for humanity. It's not a new problem, no. There is a lot of existing research. I've seen more on the volunteer side. So I think, Richard, you are at the Stain Forum in San Francisco. And I think that's where I learned about all the research around volunteer energy, which I really liked as an idea, which is understanding why people are volunteering and understanding their motivation and their capacity to do this and how different things affected that capacity. And so I think that explains part of the picture, but I think I haven't seen enough research that is looking at the sort of the messy in between. <laughs> we've seen research on why businesses do this. And we've seen researchers research again on like motivation of individuals, but individuals also work at companies. There's a lot of middle ground. And I think it is something that there is a lot of research, but if you know of some, I always want to hear it. I think the thing that's been hardest for me as a, business research dabbling in academia is that I don't have the first year of my program to just go and read research. <laughs> so I try to read some every week, but I think there's always stuff out there. So I guess if you're listening to this and you've seen a piece of research on this topic, I want to read it. <laughs> Please let us know. The Sustained Forum was an invite-only event with the same name. So I don't want people to feel like they were like not allowed to go to San Francisco. It was a really interesting discussion with mainly academics. We're still waiting for stuff to come out of that. But it was good to see you there, Sophia. And that was an interesting conversation. Just wanted to throw that out there for those of you who are like, wait, I missed a Sustained event? You didn't. You kind of did. It was a thing. Sophia, I have another interesting question for me. Interesting for me. Who knows if it's interesting for you? not really sure how to ask it. So I'm just going to say that when I started working on open source is because I was a broke student and I needed to change my careers. I couldn't do linguistics work and get paid for it. No one will pay you to translate Anglo-Saxon texts, but they will pay you to build websites. And so I ended up going into technology and moving to New York City and moving to San Francisco and working as a galley slave for a few years. And, you know, that was really interesting. I'm wondering whether or not the motivations of young people and particularly people from the global south are more aligned towards working in open source in general because it's a really excellent way for them to build up their CV and it's an easy way to get some cash. And in places where it's cheaper to live, it allows you to get enough cash to live and also have enough time where you can then get into open source stuff and be more vibrant. And I'm wondering if we're going to see more of a wave of open source work coming out of developing nations, coming out of more youth led things where they don't have to have such a high overhead just to exist. And I don't know whether where the question is in there. So I just want to know like what your thoughts are about that premise. I think it is happening already. I think it's incredibly difficult to measure. I think one of the 
the best things that I like doing is if you ever tried to Google what is the global population of developers, you're going to see wildly different numbers. Like some people are like 24 million, billion, whatever that number is. I should look that up before I say things on recorded channels. But it's more that it's a huge estimate. And then you look at other channels like GitHub that has 70 something million users. Maybe there's some redundancy there, but it's one of those things where it's like, we don't really know how to define this thing anymore. And I think that gap to me is sort of those in between people that are trying to understand how to use these things in a way that helps them learn new skills and could be quote unquote a developer at a company doing a technical job. Like I think there is definitely a path for folks that want to find it in this. And we are seeing people do that. I think Summer of Code from Google has, has seen some incredible case studies of people doing that. I think that's just one population. So I, I would love to see how other programs are making an impact like that. But the interest is global. It's, it's all over the place. And I think especially for some, this can be just another resource, another support that you can have versus having to have the right education, the right exposure, the right company hire you right at a college. I think there is definitely a path for folks. I think something that I've actually been thinking about a lot is on this topic, but I think what we don't really have a good understanding right now of is also sort of like the age and population distribution. Because this, this could happen at any time. It doesn't have to be right out of college. It can be one opportunity, but it can also happen later in life. And I think some things that I've been curious about is some of these longer standing projects are, they have aging out populations. And we're not really seeing that because we're not necessarily collecting a lot of demographic information around these communities. And we're focusing potentially on ensuring welcoming exclusivity, but we're not necessarily looking at how long people are going to stay in because they might be hitting retirement soon. And I think it's an interesting question because I think there's a lot of lot more complexity there around how this can bring people into other types of jobs and roles and functions. But at the same time, I think there's also the like residual population that kind of helps to perpetuate all of this. And I'm not sure how that composition is changing. How many people that are new are sticking around and are growing the next generation of contributors and maintainers and how much of the systems are still reliant on the people that have been around for the last 30 years that are doing this work? I think it's a little bit of both. It's a really rambly answer, but I am thinking about that. I am looking at students and employees and people that are not employed as all separate populations because they do have different motivations. But I think for your point, I shouldn't be thinking about it just as students, just as those that might want to just transition. You don't have to be coming out of a university. You could just be someone in your job. And I, I have heard those stories as well. People finding open source work as a way to help them learn, develop new skills and do something else. But again, learning and development, top of motivation of why people are doing these things. I'm going to actually take this question in a slightly different direction and, and something that's been on my mind since we started talking. What is the process slash how does one go about quantifying the different ways in which folks engage in communities and in public spaces that aren't necessarily available through traditional channels? It's very easy to see someone authored a blog post. It's very easy to see that there are commits in a repository. It is very easy to see that a release happened at such and such time. But I also feel like the essential glue work that actually causes most of those things to happen is completely invisible in our systems and therefore completely invisible in our research. And as someone who practices glue work often, I often find that makes me a sad panda. Do you have any thoughts to share on this particular premise? I do only share them somewhat because I don't want to disrupt anyone's research process, but we are actively working on a project supporting this kind of research now. 
to basically see where we can see the glue work. So there's a couple of researchers that are thinking about it, starting from what are all those tasks that we think should be included in this that we can't readily see and trace data? And then how do we start to identify those types of activities in the data that we have? And I think something that's, that's been sort of the fun researcher who also works on chaos in the chaos community, this particular project and community, we've been talking about it as well in a very practical sense. We as a community want to recognize this work. How do we start to track that in a way that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable, but also allows us to recognize all this extra work that is happening that is not visible because it's not being logged on GitHub. It's not being logged at any sort of existing platform and repository. And so we as a community have also been discussing how to do this. So there's both the sort of the, the research approach as well as very practically, can we test out other ways to do this? And I think some of the things that we've discussed are, at least within chaos, some of the things that we produce are metrics, which are conceptual ideas that are often written in markdown files. So like not exactly like code, but at the same time, because by the time that thing gets submitted to the website or to GitHub, then it's just a file with a name on it. So to get around that, sometimes we'll actually have the people explicitly who are involved in the conversation and their drafting of the prose be listed out explicitly in it. So we're trying to find ways to ensure that everyone gets credit for the work that they did on the thing, but that's still not seeing everything. And so we are looking at other ways to collect that and to take records. A lot of it is just basically trying to find out how to keep better records, but also make certain types of activities more visible. And so there's some discussion of, well, what if we put everything on GitHub, even if it's just managing an event and just keeping track of the tasks and issues that are open on GitHub, even if it's not coding related activity, now there's all this activity generated that's visible, traceable, countable around this other thing that isn't code related, but we still use the same tool so that we can see the activity and the people related to it. So there's one idea of adapting processes to take them to platforms that have better inherent tracking and analytics. The other thing is maybe embedding when that gets maybe a little creepier because now we're tracking people in ways maybe they don't want to be. So that's also like the fine line. There's been some discussion around how communication channels have been routinely discussed in both research and community contexts around the value of I think one of my favorite pieces of research was looking at the success rate of projects in the Apache Incubator program. And they looked at all these different metrics around code contribution. But because of the way that Apache works, all of the communications were centralized in their tools. And they found that actually tracing the communication activity was a better indicator of success that the project was going to graduate versus any coding-related activity. So definitively not the code work. It was around the code work. But because they had a central platform for communication, there was a little bit more visibility in other work and other conversation and other contexts. And not to say that's going to capture all glue work. There's certainly things that are not in there. But we're pretty interested in understanding how what we can learn from just existing communication channels. One of the things that we're thinking about a lot is like, who's in a natural connector in a community? Who's bringing people in? Who's making sure people are engaged? Maybe they're the ones that have the most hello backs on Slack, but that's not public information that's happening in the community or your private channel or whatever it is. So that's again, like in chaos, we're looking at, can we have better visibility on that? That could essentially, we can have a better sense of who's being more proactive in the community, who's doing, we're leading more conversations. And this again, does not solve everything, but it's looking at where places that we can learn about this but also ways that we can increase visibility of it and create better systems to track it. And I know you've probably talked to Amanda about 
the across project. And I know this is also something that she's been very much invested in and trying to understand. So it is very much top of mind and we're still trying to understand it. We're still trying to find better ways to track it and to grant and grant visibility to people that are doing work. And I, there's actually one session at Fosse that I really appreciated. That was just basically people turning around and telling other people about awesome work that people do that nobody sees. <laughs> one of my favorite was just like, people who run really good meetings. How do we give them credit for that? Yes, you're listed as the meeting runner, but you kept us on time. We got the entire agenda. We had a productive conversation and we were able to like come back from all the rat holes. That is an incredibly helpful thing that you've done that I'm not sure if anything is actually tracking that or recognizing that outside of you lead two meetings a week. It's one of those things where like that isn't enough context to really understand the value that individual is providing. So I like that a lot. I like that you're trying to measure that. I definitely see corollaries to linguistic researchers trying to figure out how many speakers of a language there are. It's an incredibly hard thing to judge. To religious researchers figuring out how many people follow a certain religion, incredibly hard thing to judge. So definitely like some other fields of research there, which might be fun to look into. I don't have names to give you. Sadly, I'm just like, this is exactly the same problem. Also, how many wizards there are in the world? Because let's face it, code is pretty much magic. So how many words do you have to say to be a wizard? I don't know. Really interesting question. There's also how many goats you might need for any assorted rituals. This is very complex, Richard. I don't know if we have time for it left in the podcast. Don't have time for it. So my question is actually, you've mentioned Apache and you've mentioned Linux kernel. Those are two very small subsets of the open source ecosystem. They are small. They look huge from our perspective because we see them at conferences and they show up. But the conferences we go to are small. Like arguably the largest open source thing in the world is like jQuery and like people using, you know, the Internet or Bitcoin and all of the cryptocurrency space, all of whom pretty much use some sort of open license somewhere in their stack. And so I'm just wondering, like, how do you limit it? And has it changed at all the last couple of years of your thinking of what is open source? Oh, it just keeps getting bigger. I think I'm going to call it another piece of research by the Complex Systems Center out of UVM that attempted to count open source work outside of GitHub to give you sort of a relative comparison. So I think one of the sort of, I don't want to say Achilles heel of open source systems research, but a lot of it happens around GitHub because it's such a big repository of stuff and activity with all these great APIs and data that you can pull from. But there's so many things that are happening outside of that and that have always been happening outside of that. And I think um, that was a piece of research that actually attempted to quantify that <laughs> and just remind us how big the world is. It's not just one thing. It's not just Linux or Apache or GitHub or one of these one things. Like It's always so much bigger than that. And I think what's always been really important for me is trying to get exposure to all the different spaces. I think trying to go to as many different kinds of conferences with different people, different projects, different ideals. Like I think there is, this world is so big and so complex. When I say world, I just mean open source, <laughs> not the actual world. And I think it's just, I have to constantly do that in terms of pushing myself out because I think as a researcher, I'm also drawn to the thing that I know that I can investigate. <laughs> It's just like, well, there's data there. Oh, there's data on GitHub. Or I work at Google. I can understand Google's population. And I think that there's definitely a bit of inherent bias because those are the things that we can see, that we can measure, that we can test and investigate. I didn't even talk about other piece of research, but I, there's a lot of, I know, people in it. So I'm going to use it as my test case around understanding these particular behavioral trends. 
And we have to do that at a micro level to understand what's happening and to test our ideas. But I think we have to continually step back and notice how big our world is and understand that it doesn't look the same from everyone's perspective. And I think that it's a constant struggle, but also what keeps this interesting for me (laughs) while we're trying to find like the magic bullet of who to pay. There probably isn't one, but there's probably a better answer is is what I'm hoping for. And it's not going to meet everyone's need and it's not going to potentially be revolutionary at all. It's just going to help us guide better decisions of who we pay on a given day. And so the hope is that we understand enough so that we can continually improve versus assuming that we know it all, which is most certainly not the case. I love that. That's an awesome answer. It's also a good place to wrap up. And if it helps at all, there are less than 10 billion developers in the world because there aren't that many people. So there's always going to be like an up limit somewhere. So that's great. Sophia, this has been excellent. Where can people follow you and your work on the webs? I'm still figuring that out right now. Our social channels have blown up. Yes, LinkedIn. I don't like saying that, but the other platform that we used to use, not really on that anymore. So I, I don't know. I'm hoping that the community finds one place and sticks to it. And then I can also glom on there. But I guess LinkedIn for now. Do you have a website? Do you have like a blog? I don't, but maybe I should one day. Good for you. No, good for you. That's great. Keep it up. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to have you. People can obviously reach Sophia by the channels that she mentioned, such as the chaos community. If you want to get involved with chaos, she is there. There's a few other places as well. So Thank you, Sophia. Don't leave yet. Now's the time for the show where we have Spotlight, where we point out people, projects, places, things that we feel just need a little bit more light put on them. Leslie, what's your spotlight today? I have been spending a lot of time lately thinking about him. So my spotlight is actually on my very first boss out of university, Mr. Joseph An Nguyen, who was an intellectual property attorney who taught me all about the great vagaries of intellectual property law and also was the very first person on my journey who showed me what being a great boss, a great supporter, and a great ally looks like in the workplace. And I am forever grateful for those early lessons. Excellent. Thank you, Joseph. My spotlight today is the Green Mountain Club, and I guess also the Appalachian Mountain Club. I spent the last month hiking the Long Trail in Vermont. It's a 273-mile trail going from Massachusetts to Canada, and I stayed for the entirety of the hike in shelters that were free to use and provided by the GMC and the AMC who maintain both the Appalachian Trail and the Long Trail. And it's amazing that I was able to do that. This is a free part of the public commons. Go hike today on any of those trails. If you're somewhere else in the country, there's the Continental Divide Trail, the Colorado Trail, the John Muir Trail, or the Pacific Crest Trail. Those are the major five other ones that are very, very exciting and cool. And I just am really grateful to all the volunteers and donors over the years who made the trails and keep them up and going. So thank you so much for that. Sophia, what is your spotlight today? I have to call it an individual. Her name is Anessa Pawson, and she's a maintainer of NumPy. And I'm thinking about her right now because as a researcher, I always started at the macro level. We're talking about the data center industry or the open source ecosystem. What do we know? What can we understand? What can we learn from the data? But when we talk about open source, it's really comes down to the people and understanding individual perspective of a maintainer on a project like NumPy that's been around for a long time. And her willingness to sit down with me and tell me her story and understanding the complexity of her work and her engagement in the community and the trajectory of the project 
I was just so incredibly grateful as a researcher to suddenly be working in a space like open source that I could go and talk to people about it. I could go to talk to people that were really living this experience that just were willing to share their story for no other incentive. They were just happy to share, happy to inform how I was understanding their world. And I think I'm forever grateful for the people that are willing to share their experiences. Because I think, again, like as a researcher, it's really easy to get lost in what the data says and what the data could mean and how we're going to interpret it. Because that's how we prove that something is happening at a systematic level. We're looking for traces in vast amounts of data. But these are activities about people and what people are doing and how they're engaging. And so without those individual stories and experiences, our research doesn't mean anything. So thank you to Anessa. Thank you to all the other maintainers that have been willing to share with us and the broader research community about their work and their experiences. And you are the reason why we're able to research this space. So thank you for giving us your time and for sharing your unabridged experience of working in open source. Love that. Thank you so much. Also, thank you listeners for listening to this podcast. It's been really great to have you. This is the end of the podcast. So here's a bit where I talk really fast, like this is a drug commercial. So if you have any thoughts about this podcast, you can email us at podcast.org. I'll go to all the hosts. Happy to have any sort of thoughts, ideas for other possible future guests, whatever you want, send them there. Hate mail, go ahead. We love it. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you have gotten this sort of podcast. And you can also go on to discourse.org to actually find a forum posting, which will be made for this podcast in particular, if you're interested in commenting on it or sharing your thoughts or links. You also share other sort of sustained thoughts there as well. If you want to follow along with sustained stuff happening in the ecosystem, you can do that every other Friday. We have sustained together discussions at Friday at noon ET. Very excited to have other people go on to that. Also, you can join us on most of the social media channels. Completely stopped using X or whatever it's called now, so maybe try somewhere else. But very excited to have People just generally comment and join the community at large. This podcast also costs some money to create. So if you work at a company and you would like to donate some money, please send it our way. OpenCollective.com slash SustainOSS is probably one of the easiest ways to do that. You can find more episodes online at podcastsustainoss.org. And Sophia, thank you so much. We'll put the show notes up afterwards. It was really great to have you. Best of luck with the research and looking forward to seeing that LinkedIn update with new thing I made, I guess, in the future. So thank you. Thanks, Sophia. Thank you. Thank you.